This is Amy Blair. And this is Paul Gagliardi. Welcome back to the Annotated 80s. Well, hello to all you podcast fans, and welcome to opening day of our summer series of the Annotated 80s. For this episode, we have a new voice joining Amy and Paul in the pod as we take on the classic 80s baseball comedy Major League. Listen to the roar of the crowd as the co-hosts take the field. This is going to be the first episode of a double header. Uh, next, we will turn our attention to the minor leagues with 1988's Bull Durham. But today we're talking about Major League, which actually came out the year after Bull Durham, 1989. So chronologically, this is backwards. Well, we're taking a look at a more traditional sports film, I think, this week. And then next time, we'll take a look at a less traditional sports film. So maybe that's the way we can spin that to our, to our readers. Our readers, our listeners, as it were. <laughs> what, was I, what was I doing all day? I don't know. Also, Major League, we're doing it first because it's near and dear to our hearts uh, as people who now live in Milwaukee. Uh, the movie was filmed in the old county stadium here. Uh, former brewer and longtime Milwaukee radio play-by-play announcer, Mr. Baseball, Bob Euchre, is prominently featured in the film. Even though it's supposed to be about the Cleveland Indians, people in Milwaukee pretty much think it's about the Milwaukee baseball team. And two, this gives us the chance to have our very first special guest on the podcast this episode. Allow me to introduce Jessica Birch. Uh, who studied cinema uh, in graduate school, is also a Milwaukee native and a huge Milwaukee Brewers fan and a personal friend of mine. I am. I am a Milwaukee native. I am a Brewer fan. I grew up going to County Stadium, then Miller Park, and now whatever the field is called, which I refuse to name. Excellent. Well, welcome to the chaos. So one other thing we're going to try to do today, uh, because we're all about the gimmicks, is to split up the show <laughs> into innings. Uh, we will try to have nine innings, to be precise. Uh, I don't think we're going to go into extra innings. So without further ado... For the first inning, let's start with a little bit of a plot summary for any of you who have not yet seen the film. Former showgirl inherits the Cleveland American League franchise and is tempted to relocate the team to Miami because it's warmer and better than Cleveland. The team has an out clause in its stadium contract with the city that permits them to do so if attendance falls below a certain level. Uh, the general manager, right, then on her order, recruits a misfit ragtag group of players, a whole bunch of has-beens and never-will-bees, uh, according to Willie Mays Hayes, uh, one of the characters. These players are Ricky Vaughn, Willie Mays Hayes. And then the team apparently plays baseball uh, for a little bit, like the current Pittsburgh Pirates. In other words, really, really badly. But then, <laughs> uh, after they learn that they are being basically set up to fail by their owner, they set up a model of her in their locker room where they strip off a little bit of her clothing every time they win a game. 
And this is enough motivation for them to come back and win the pennant after a one-game playoff against the New York Yankees. Yeah, originally, what I discovered in the research for this episode was that the original plot of the film had the owner using this whole bring in a bad team to relocate the team as motivation for the team to 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 play better and they actually took it to test audiences and test audiences couldn't understand that motivation <laughs> and so they went back and changed it where she was just a callous owner wanting to desperately move the team to to miami um and I, the most interesting thing i learned about the movie was a very different <laughs> ending at the, at the beginning I've been learning an awful lot about how test audiences have dramatically changed the endings to films. So like the ending of Pretty in Pink is completely transformed because of test audiences. And they actually had to bring back Andrew McCarthy to refilm it. Um, and the reason that his hair looks really terrible in the last scene in that film is because he was already working on a play on Broadway and he had his head shaved. And so they had to give him a wig. Oh, and it was right. a really, yeah. really bad way. And it has always yeah. bothered me that his hair looks so shitty in the, in the prom scene. And now I know why. So for our second inning, we'll get the Milwaukee perspective. Jess, take it away. I feel like every Milwaukee person loves this film for a couple different reasons. One, because half of the city, well, 20,000 people in the city got to be extras in the mm -hmm. film, right? So mm -hmm. I was like seven or eight when that was happening and I was deep in uh, evangelical culture. So my parents mm -hmm. were like, no, secular film, we're not going at night, it's too late. Um, you, you can't be an extra, but I do know a couple of my friends have been extras and, and whatever. And you can still see like, there's a quad graphics t-shirt, like prominently shown on, it's a crop top. It's like the most eighties quad graphic shirt ever. Um, the bar, the, the scene of the bar is I think at fourth base, which is a, a bar on, I believe it's on national. Um, and, and then you have like the old County stadium and you have Bob Uecker, Right. And I mm -hmm, think like, that's mm -hmm. the thing that like brings all of the Milwaukee people in. Um, and it's, they're both small markets. Cleveland and Milwaukee mm -hmm. are both small market baseball teams. So you have this kind of, and, um, when I was doing research, I read that the writer director, maybe just the writer, I don't know, basically wanted the Indians to go to a world series. And that's why he wrote this movie because he didn't think it would happen in his lifetime. And as a Brewer fan, I feel that I feel that because I grew up, <laughs> the Brewers were terrible growing up. Like they just became good in the late two, you know, like in 2008, 2009, 2010, and still mm -hmm. always missing, always missing the world series. So like, I, I feel that in my heart. Um, well, but they were yeah. astonishingly good originally, like when they first became an uh, expansion team. Oh, for sure. Yeah. But I right. mean, in my lifetime, like mm -hmm. I don't remember right. any of that. And then right. my, my, my parents are both from Milwaukee as well. And I mean, for a while, they didn't even have a baseball team here. So mm -hmm. like, to me, that's just how do you how do you not have a baseball team? And so it's, it's not just that it's Euchre carrying this haphazard team along and then getting excited when they win, which is exactly what happens. I mean, he even does the move when they win the game. He does this like 
weird hand move that he literally did a couple years ago. <laughs> He's legitimately like part of every single Brewers team. Um, mm-hmm, and I think that mm-hmm. that's really, you can really see that. Um, and you had some former Brewers in the film. Um, yep. Clue Haywood is played by Pete Vukovic, mm-hmm. who's a young winner, I believe in 82, which is the Brewers World Series team. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and he's, you know, the nemesis. So yeah, it's definitely something that has um, been in our culture. And I feel like that's, that's the big connection is like Milwaukee and Cleveland are, especially in the 80s, we're like these former Rust Beltish towns, mm-hmm. not knowing what to do with each other, yep. not knowing what to do with our our population. And baseball is something that like clearly the movie is all about how baseball brings people together, right? That's exactly so, right. Yeah. Um, and I've seen that happen as a brewer fan at watching mm-hmm. games in bars, watching games at the park. You know, you talk to people you wouldn't talk to otherwise, mm-hmm. and it's just this like that feeling of like pure unadulterated joy that only professional sports can somehow give to you. All right. So into the third inning here, uh, one of the traditions we have on this show is me nitpicking the narrative of films and the grand tradition of me trying to place uh, the time sequence narrative of (laughs) urban cowboy which I still have, I have s- still have s- scientists looking at right now. Um, <laughs> I so still like I, my Romeo and Juliet theory, but keep going. It's, it's, it's a good theory. Um, so one thing for me, as I've seen this movie several times, uh, is I'm always thrown by the, the, the moment where the, team, the, the Cleveland Indians have come back and they have drawn even with the Yankees and they're forcing a one-game playoff and they're celebrating. And the, the, the local news station has a reporter uh, at the hotel where the team is celebrating. And Corbin Burnson, uh, who plays Dorn, you see him walking into a, a room and it's very strongly implied he's, he's cheating on his wife. And his wife is watching this live uh local affiliate broadcast yeah they're they're Um, leaving the celebration right together after smooching right after smooching um and then she gets very angry and she decides to go out to a bar in cleveland uh wearing Mm -hmm. a very sultry dress uh and she picks up um uh, ricky vaughn played by Charlie Sheen. Charlie Sheen, thank you. Uh, and Charlie <laughs> Sheen is unaware that this is the wife of his teammate, and they go back and back to his place, mm-hmm. um, and he, everyone realizes that he has slept with with Dorn's wife. But then the next, but he scene, didn't know she was Dorn's wife. Right, right. He didn't know that she was Very she important. was his wife. Right. Um, the next scene, we see her sitting on a couch, and then Dorn is coming back into the house presumably the next day. So this leads right. to like all these questions of what, when did the team get back as a team? What did Doran say he was doing in, I would say this 12 hour window, theoretically. Right. Um, and uh, it's, it's always, it's always bothered me, you know, um, <laughs> it also bothers me that, uh, that one of the, one of the comic sequences in, in the film is to de-inspire the team, the owner gets rid of their chartered jets uh, and has them in like 1940s, uh, you know, uh, TWA planes. Right. And then later a bus uh, that looks like it's was <laughs> a decrepit bus. And I have to say, 
the union would not allow this. Like the players' union, would, there would be grievances across the board. <laughs> uh, we're traveling in very unsafe conditions. Uh, but of course, it's comedy, and you kind of let that slide a little bit because it's exaggerated to be right. to be sure. But bothers me to say that. Yes, it's a comedy, not a documentary. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, I was going to say it's also worth noting, though, um, mm -hmm. if we're talking about narrative and we're talking about the persistence of narrative, um, that Major League um, actually does have an awful lot of current cultural relevance. Um, I could go on about this forever, and in the past I have, but I will only talk about it very briefly, which is the beauty that is uh, the current Apple TV Plus uh, streaming series, Ted Lasso, which as soon as I started watching it, I said, this is major league, but make it football, premier league football. Uh, it has the same basic setup. Uh, there is a uh, disgruntled woman. In this case, she's upset because her ex-husband was a cad and he loved, loved, loved this premier league team. She ends up inheriting the team in the divorce and she decides that she's going to tank it. Um, in this case, she's not going to tank it by <laughs> hiring terrible players. She tanks it by hiring a completely inappropriate uh, uh, coach, Ted Lasso, who is actually an American football coach, American high school football coach, who is really only famous because of a viral video where he was dancing with his players in the locker room. Um, but what ends up happening, of course, in Ted Lasso is that he is charming and lovely and wonderful. And he shows up and the team ends up kind of loving him. And she also ends up kind of loving him. Uh, mm -hmm. The thing that I love about Ted Lasso, which actually sheds a little bit of light on some of the problems that Paul and I have been recognizing about the 80s in general, is that Ted Lasso takes this premise and is completely anti-misogynist about it. <laughs> like They actually take this premise and uh, embrace the female characters who are very three-dimensional and who are actually some of the most complex characters. Uh, Ted Lasso, uh, the series enables the women to have robust connections with each other that don't have anything to do with the men in their lives and um, is actually very sweet and charming at its heart. And uh, I am a cynical, cynical person with an terrible, terrible soul. And I should not love Ted Lasso, but I love it with the deepest core of my inner being. So all I have to say is find yourself a friend who has Apple TV plus. I still am trying to convince Paul to come over and watch it with me. You have to watch Ted Lasso. It is good for what ails you. It is the thing that is going to restore your faith in humanity. They also did a really, really great promo video announcing the U.S. women's national team uh, for the Olympics in soccer. I mean, just anything you can find with Jason Sudeikis uh, and Coach uh, Beard and Ted Lasso, you should watch immediately as soon as possible. And that's all I'm going to say. Okay, so we're in the fourth inning now. And I wanted this one thing I was thinking about with Major League is, of course, the central reason for these ragtag players to be 
in Cleveland is to for the owner to have you know get the clause to move the team to to Miami. Mm -hmm. um, and this is both uh, something that's even more modern about Major League in a lot of ways because we're very much in an era of teams threatening to relocate to other cities yeah. uh, for for new uh, new digs, as it were. Um, one thing I was thinking about was of course she's a showgirl a chorus girl showgirl how do they describe her it's, uh, uh, a, a showgirl yeah showgirl. her name is lola she was a showgirl. Yeah. No, it's not lola but <laughs> yeah and and there is a tradition of of women becoming owners of team sports after their husbands have have died or women owning teams mm -hmm. teams outright but there's also a tradition in baseball too of entertainment of another entertainment form shall not intermix with with baseball and mm -hmm. I was thinking of that evoking of her as a, um, a chorus girl as maybe think of Ted, uh, was it uh, uh, Frazzy, the owner of the, the Red Sox who sold oh, yeah. Ruth uh, to the Yankees in order to finance a Broadway play, right? If you, yep. you know, mm -hmm. So, so um, but I think the bigger picture here is, right, that this is coming uh, at a time in the 1980s where Cleveland uh, is a Rust Belt city, uh, is a decrepit, falling apart stadium, um, mm -hmm. and that fear for a lot of pro, a lot of fan bases, my team could relocate. Right? Mm -hmm. um, that happened a lot in Major League Baseball. Right For a long time, Major League Baseball was pretty set. It was eight teams in each league. Um, nobody really moved. And then the Boston Braves moved to Milwaukee. Right. Mm. And this triggered teams in St. Louis going right. to Baltimore, uh, the Dodgers and Giants moving to California. But under the under the promise with these new cities of brand new stadiums, right, mm -hmm. especially stadiums that were not in urban environments, but were in more suburban environments because you mm -hmm. have the rise of highways and cars and you right. can't park in around Ebbets Field. So you needed, right. you know, to build a, a giant stadium yes. or a, a giant stadium, not giant stadium in, in, in Dodgerville. Um, but and of course, like for a long time, Florida was Shangri-La, the, the Shangri-La for stadiums, right? Tampa and Miami. And mm -hmm. at some point in the 1980s, I know the giants, the white Sox, and I think the athletics all threatened to move to Tampa or Miami. Well, cause you can um, also train year long, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. So, I mean, because that's where spring training is. It's either in Florida or Arizona, right? So, right. Easier for the teams. Yeah. But it also, I think what makes it even more modern is all four big sports, sports mm -hmm. leagues in North America, this is ingrained into the day to day operations mm -hmm. of those leagues, right? Right. So, Mil you know, pick any city, any team that has a brand new stadium, Milwaukee uh, with the Bucks, or mm -hmm. go down the line, right? At some point, that team has subtly or not so subtly threatened to we'll move to Vegas, we'll move to Houston, <laughs> we'll move to Seattle, <laughs> if, you know, we don't get the brand new spanking stadium. Right. Um, and each commissioner in each league now has, they all have that one Shangri-La city mm -hmm. right, where you mm -hmm. need to keep that city open so you can milk new stadiums out of these, um, you know, cities and states, right? Right. Like and, and then you think it's going to be a total boondoggle, but then something happens that uh, it actually ends up, I mean, 
as much as anybody hates it, right? It, it actually kind of does end up bringing the city together. So I think, mm-hmm. you know, very recently, I mean, immediately right now, we're living through the situation with Pfizer Forum with the Bucks in Milwaukee, right? Um, Pfizer Forum is built. Giannis signs a five-year deal. Suddenly the Bucks are constant contenders in the NBA and, um, it actually really does bring the city together. And that becomes a very conscientious plot point as well in major league, right? Uh, there's a scene, one of, one of my favorite scenes in the film uh, is when Jake stalks his ex-girlfriend, Lynn, right? Mm-hmm. Um, ends up uh, on the advice of Willie Mays Hayes, um, ends up following her into her rich boy, new boyfriend's house uh, where he is having a dinner party for a whole bunch of wealthy patrons. Um, these are the upper crust folks. And when they start talking to Jake and asking him what he does, they're super amused that he plays for the Indians, right? Um, there's one woman who says, oh, I didn't know they still had a team, right? <laughs> so like, these are the, these are the wealthiest people in, uh, presumably in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. He says, oh yeah, we've got uniforms and everything. Right. Um, which is a, a kind of amusing thing. And then and then the the narrative, the teams moving in cities, not appreciating the teams they have. Right. These are the wealthiest patrons in the city. Presumably, they should be the people who are actually also donating to and celebrating the teams. They don't even know that they're there. Right. Um, and so there are all these different montages. I've actually taken a whole bunch of screenshots of montages from the film that I'm going to post on our Instagram. Um, but the the opening scenes are kind of people from all different walks of life. Um, and the, the idea is that like, this is all of what Cleveland is, right? And who might be interested in the Indians? And then sort of midway through when they're actually finally making their pennant run, um, there's this montage again of all these people who are suddenly wearing Indians gear, right? Uh, they're high-fiving each other on the streets because they're wearing Indians gear. There's like an old guy playing chess who's wearing the Wild Thing Mm -hmm. t-shirt. There's a scene where these two white women are walking down the street and a black guy walks in between them and they're all wearing Indians gear and they turn around and high-five each other, Mm -hmm. right? And there's this whole idea that it's, 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 uh, it's bringing the whole city together, right? It's not just, it's, it's racial diversity, but really it's also class diversity, it's age diversity, um, and, and the, the, you know, demonstrating the narrative that is always being put forward by people who say we should have huge amounts of civic dollars going toward these stadiums, right? Because it's going to unify our city. It's going to create an identity for our city, right? And I have to say, like, growing up in in North Carolina in the 80s, um, where we didn't have any uh, national teams of any sort, right? Um, The closest thing we had was the Atlanta Braves, right? But there was, uh, uh, when I was growing up in the 80s, there was a huge, huge push to get an NBA franchise somewhere in North Carolina. And they ended up doing the Charlotte Hornets, right? Um, But the whole argument was, this is finally going to give us some kind of uh, uh, identity, right? Some kind of civic identity, some kind of state identity. And of course, North Carolina had this huge state identity around NCAA basketball, right? Uh, Duke, UNC, and State there in the Triangle area. But there was no franchise of any sort. I mean, I grew up 
I, I had no NFL franchise. I mean, totally different experience from you, Paul, right? Mm-hmm. You had all the Philadelphia teams, but I had, I had no uh, professional teams to celebrate. I just had right. college sports, mm-hmm. right? And I think it, it really was probably a, a big uh, absence in North Carolina. Yeah. And it's, yeah. It, it, it's hard for me because economists do studies of these of these stadiums and mm-hmm. their economic impact on a mm-hmm. region is next to nil right mm-hmm. and and there are some economists that say you're better off just dumping a billion dollars on a city right than spend <laughs> right. the, than spend this money because it, it it's privatized right, right it's not right. right but at the same time you know when the my beloved Philadelphia Eagles won the Super Bowl a couple a few years ago mm-hmm. um I was walking around like Milwaukee and I, my worn out Eagles cap and like, I would see another <laughs> Eagles fan. We would like literally cross the street and like hug each yep, other. Yeah. There's something about that civic identity, right? That, that, uh, that unity that brings together and regional identity, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's something that you can't qualify or quantify, mm-hmm. I guess quantify, I guess mm-hmm. is a better term, but yes. So another key uh, line in the scene that I was talking about with the the, un- the the uncomfortable dinner party scene, which is my favorite one in the whole film, mm-hmm. uh, was when another woman who is wearing a totally inappropriate sleeveless dress uh, says to Jake, I've heard baseball players make very good salaries these days. <laughs> 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 and that brings us in- barreling into the fifth inning. So Major League Baseball in the 80s, Paul, it's, uh, it, it was an interesting time. It was an interesting time. Uh, <laughs> so, and I'll, I'll say this as, as a baseball fan, this was my window, or this is my introduction to baseball in the, 19, the 1980s. Um, and a lot of a lot of what happened in the 1980s was the culmination of some things that had started in the 1960s and 1970s. So number one, mm-hmm. there's a lot of rampant drug use uh, in Major League mm-hmm. Baseball. Mm-hmm. Uh, cocaine, uh, uppers, uh, and then steroids start to come into the game, <clears throat> I believe mid-1980s. Mid-19, mm-hmm. So there's a lot of drug scandals um, mm-hmm. that kind of tarnish, uh, tarnish baseball. There's the infamous gambling scandal of Pete Rose <sighs> in 1989. Yes. Um, how that, the mighty have fallen. I remember oh, that was like one of the first like big, how, well, it was, it wasn't the first one, but it was the one that I remember, right. Mm-hmm. Versus the black Sox, which then sure. ends up getting made into a movie. Yes. Right? In the 1980s. Right. Um, so as the time major league is released, this is, this I think is revealed not long after major league is, re- is, is released is the Pete Rose gambling mm-hmm. scandal. Um, you have the 1981 strike with a shortened season. Uh, mm-hmm. You have uh, the owners, it's revealed, and this gets less play than it should, but they collude mm-hmm. in free agency to keep players' salaries down. Uh, you have skyrocketing salaries. You have the introduction of cable TV. So for a lot mm-hmm. of people, and again, my experience in baseball in the 1980s was my dad listening to the Phillies game on his boombox and then watching <laughs> the Phillies game on TV or watching whatever was on ESPN. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I could, I could not figure out how we managed this. It was very impressive. Mm-hmm. But hearing the complaints from him and my uncles and the family members of the, the game has changed. 
Um, mm-hmm. Mike Schmidt is no Robin Roberts. Uh, he mm-hmm. is, you know, no Richie Ashburn. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, you know, Pete Rose is, you know, he's a, he's a ball player, right. But everyone else mm-hmm. on the Philly is, is not, you know, not cut, you know, we don't like the color of their jib and the game has changed. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of films in this in this era that kind of play up this sort of nostalgic view of of baseball so field of dreams right mm-hmm. you build it they will come right you could argue eight men out right is mm-hmm. it's, it's a cd like one of the worst incidents in baseball history but mm-hmm. you know, but the not- bad guys get caught right yeah in the, eight ba- men the out. bad guys get caught and and they yeah. do try to and a little child will Say it ain't so, Joe. (laughs) Nicely done, yes, exactly. And even the natural, right? Uh, The natural is another one. The the big Robert Redford, right? Right. I mean, he 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 behaves badly and he suffers for it. Mm -hmm. Right. Although the book, the novel is very different than than the film. The Malamud, yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. We could talk a lot about Malamud. Okay, but (laughs) yeah. So I, so I think there's like I think Major League in some ways falls into this mm-hmm. like nostalgic embrace of base, and even Bull Durham in some ways is nostalgic for like you know the simple form of, of baseball, yep. right? Yep. The more pure form, quote unquote. Yeah. Um, but here are players that are playing to to play for a, a winner. They're not playing mm-hmm. necessarily for money necessarily. Right. It's their last chance. The love of the game, the rags tag, rag tag, rags to riches, Cinderella yep. story that is the yep. 1989 Cleveland Indians. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I think it's kind of in this kind of reaction to people saying the game is now different. Yeah, I mean, one of the scenes in this that's kind of, it kind of plays into this and it's a little bit tough to parse. Mm-hmm. So I would appreciate your close reading of it. Um, at one point, Jake, as the captain, goes to visit Dorn, right? Who is kind of kind of the star-ish, like he's the the most highly paid mm-hmm. uh, player. Uh, he has this laugh of laughably lavish house, right? It actually it actually reminds me an awful lot of um, the house of the guy in Roadhouse, who's the. <laughs> The, uh, yeah, the evil With guy. In the evil guy in Roadhouse, yeah. right? It, it's kind of tropical and lush mm-hmm. in the same kind of way. Um, and he's uh, Jake is going to say, you know, could you actually start trying to play harder, right? Could you stop trying to protect your body? Um, and Dorn, however, counters. He's about to become a free agent, so he doesn't want to hurt himself. Right. And so I texted Paul and I said, this is he right right how do you read that scene with Dorn? it's a very interesting scene because i think in some ways again like in this like the players make too much money and dorn becomes mm-hmm. emblematic of living in the opulent house you know driving mm-hmm. a rolls royce uh, to mm. to spring training, you know, carrying his golf clubs uh, into. into <laughs> right. Oh my gosh! Yes. Um, and like not trying to trying too hard to uh, ground or field uh, grounders, right? Because mm-hmm. he doesn't want to bend over and he doesn't want to hurt himself. He doesn't want to hurt himself. And he's like, I, I took one of those in the shoulder last year. I think is, is what he says. Mm. Um, and there's a moment where 
uh, he brings a copy of his contract uh, on the field uh, and the manager, and he's pointing out all these clauses. I don't have to do this. I don't have to do this. I don't have to do this. And the mm. manager like whips, pulls down his, his, uh, his fly uh, and pisses on the contract, right? Which is like the most metaphorical, like, you know, clear metaphor you can, you can think of for, for this. <laughs> and a real moment for the sound editors there too. In the for the Foley <laughs> artists, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> 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 hitting a, uh, so, but it, in, in some ways I get it right like, uh -huh. you know, like but at the same time it's like you're literally ignoring a legally binding document right that has been uh -huh. negotiated in good faith right under the mm -hmm. auspices of a larger players uh league and players agreement right mm -hmm. um so if, if the player has negotiated, I don't need to do this, right? I, I think that's fair. I think that's totally fair. Um, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's a good comic moment, but I think, you know, it's the Dorn's absolutely in the right. I, mm -hmm. I, I don't need to do this. I, I, I have earned this. I have negotiated mm -hmm. this. And you're literally pissing on it. Union time. Where's the union? Where's the union rep? <laughs> We don't have a union in this film, which is really interesting, but. That is, it, I mean, I, I said that jokingly earlier, but it is actually interesting to me that the, the union does not, does not exist, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think you can even presume that these also, I mean, we know the players are cheap, right? Into the to market, but like, it doesn't seem like they were able to negotiate their contracts. Right. right. It's sort of like, this is what we're giving you and mm -hmm. you're lucky to, to get this. Right. Uh, uh, which seems like what most owners would want to do. Right. This is kind of the owner's mm -hmm. dream. Like, you know, we can get rid of all these high priced, you know, you know, players and just bring in <laughs> And we'll just or, bring in these scrubs. Yeah. They just want anything. Breadcrumbs, right? They'll, yeah. they'll take whatever we give them. Yeah. Um, all of this drama in the 80s triggers a massive nostalgia for pre-80s baseball. Mm -hmm. or for baseball that doesn't look like the cynical, financially preoccupied game um, that Major League Traffic's in. So as we head into the sixth inning here, I think it's time to discuss the elephant in the room. Mm -hmm. And that's the issue of Native American representation and iconography in the film, and by extension, in professional sports. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Everyone really loves Major League, actually. So, I mean, this is the thing. I mean, as we were talking about Major League and planning on doing it, um, we did a little research on the internet to sort of figure out, like, what is the current status of major league in the cultural imaginary right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and if you google lists of top baseball movies basically major league is at or near number one and the other one is bull durham which is we're we're going to do that next right right um but as we were re-watching the film uh for our episode today <laughs> we started thinking is is this film too problematic to be watchable actually i mean we were both really kind of upset about i mean i mean you know okay fine 80s misogyny right you know right. we know that 80s racism 
but mm. this almost went above and beyond. Yeah. And I, and I think because it's, I, I, I well, I, well, I think we can talk about how racist this film is, right? Mm -hmm. By, and, and the team in which they are portraying is like, has adopted this racist uh, imagery. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's helpful to kind of, how do we, I, I think the question mm -hmm. that I think a lot of people have is how do we, how do we get to this point, right? Because right. The, the, the Cleveland American League franchise has announced that I think next year they will be changing their nickname, right? Yes, um, but they gave the, the Indians like a victory lap. A whole extra a, a year victory lap, right. for people to enjoy it, right? They yeah. didn't just like change it immediately. Right. Uh, the Washington NFL franchise uh, got rid of their uh, incredibly racist nickname. Um, you know, there are discussions in Kansas City and there's movement to change the Chicago Blackhawks uh, as, yes. as well. Finally. Um, finally. Um, so how do, how do we get here? So mm -hmm. long answer. Late 19th century, early 20th century, there's a sense among white Americans that their young men, especially men, young mm -hmm. men, are, are becoming feminized, uh, that they mm -hmm. are no longer hardy uh, in, in, their, mm -hmm. in their nature. Uh, many of them feel as response to urbanization uh, and uh, uh, naturalization of immigrants that America has kind of lost its, its identity. Mm. Um, and so for many white Americans, they look toward um, native peoples, right, mm -hmm. as, rep as becoming representative of what America should stand for, individualistic, uh, a bit rebellious, um, uh, self-reliant, uh, but also in touch with nature mm -hmm. uh, in, in many ways. And so they start to encourage uh, this both... Um, both social clubs like the Boy Scouts uh, to to get kids out of the city and into mm -hmm. into nature, so they can learn these traits that white people see in native in native people. Um, they also <laughs> start to encourage um, adoption of native peoples and their iconography in the nicknames for high school and university uh, athletic teams. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, because on the field, and of course, this also com combines with this push by the bourgeoisie to really encourage sports as a way to educate mm -hmm. the lower classes as to how to really function in society. Right. Um, and so you're adding that layer onto onto that. Um, and this, this is also coming at the time, this long view of the, the native person as exotic other uh, in American mm -hmm. society, and mm -hmm. also terrible racism, right? Right. Um, well, I mean, uh, we've all, we've all heard about. I mean, very famously recently about the Canadian uh, residential schools, mm -hmm. but but that also was going on in the United States at the same time. I mean, so, so on the one hand, it's this embrace of Indianness in mm -hmm. a lot of aspects of white society, but also at the same time, you have the death of the frontier. You have mm -hmm. uh, basically all Native peoples on reservations. You still have in. Indian schools uh, back east eradicating Indian culture. So it's an mm -hmm. embrace of Indianness, an eradication of Indianness based on white supremacy and, and virulent racism. Um, and so supporters of, of teams start to embrace this, these image, this imagery of mm -hmm. playing Indian, right, as, mm -hmm. as a performative uh, safe space in essence. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not long until professional sports teams start to adopt 
uh, native names. You know, um, mm-hmm. um, what's interesting about the Cleveland American League franchise is mm-hmm. they were not always the Indians. Right? And so, mm-hmm. brief aside, because I'm a sports history nerd, like most sports teams didn't have a set nickname initially, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. especially in baseball. You were the Philadelphia National League team. And you didn't really have a nickname. And so people would kind of lob nicknames onto, onto the team, right? So Red instance, Sox, White Sox, not very creative. No, no. Why are they named that? Because <laughs> that was the hey, color of their socks. Hey, well, we're wearing Red Sox. That's what we got here. Like, okay, they're the Red Sox. <laughs> Great. That's fine. Um, and so some teams for time have like multiple nicknames, depending on what newspaper is covering that team, right? Um, yeah, like the, the 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 senators were called the nationals and the senators at the same time right depending on which which part of the fan base was was yelling at them mm-hmm. um uh, my favorite team is the philadelphia philadelphians right in essence i mean it's not yeah really... they tried really hard for that one well you know <laughs> i mean come on like we had <laughs> it's there are cheesesteaks to make i mean there were there were just not enough time not enough time to come creative <laughs> So, so the Cleveland a- AL franchise mm-hmm. originally was called the Blues, the Bluebirds, and they got rid of that name. And they were yeah, called, that's lame. That sucks. That's pretty lame. They were called Bluebirds the Cleveland- are like tiny and tweety, tweety. Yeah, you know yeah. what that? They're not really intimidating. It's not 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 menacing at all. No, no, no. <laughs> um, they were called the Cleveland Naps for a time after they signed Napoloje. Uh, so they named the team after their star player. So the Nap. After Napoleoji leaves, uh, the owner of the Cleveland team's like, we got some, something new, so they say Indians. So the story that the Cleveland Indians would start to tell about the origination of that name was backtracking to the old Cleveland Spiders in the National League, which were the mm-hmm. worst baseball team of all time. They had a player, an outfielder, uh, named Louis Sokalexis, who was, uh, from, um, was, was, was the first native outfielder. Uh, I believe it's from Maine. Um, and so they came up with this story of we named the team Indians to mm-hmm. honor him, which doesn't hold up to any sort of scrutiny whatsoever because the like press clippings of when Sokalexis played in Cleveland, uh, he was subject to racist taunts from visiting fans and from his home fans. Um, to honor him, in the, the 1910s, I think when they changed the name, mm-hmm. doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It follows this pattern of racist co-option of Indianness, right? Um, and they only really concoct that story in the 1960s when you see the rise of the Indian rights movement and protesters start to say to the Redskins, to the Indians, to the Braves, you mm-hmm. probably need to change your name because this is ridiculous. And Cleveland says, no, 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 no. We're actually honoring Native peoples. Of course, I would say of the problematic Native nicknames in professional sports, the Indians had by far the worst logo. This caricature of a Native person uh, that I think it they looks adopt- like something from the Disney 20s. I mean, it's just it's oh, just appalling. It's and what's what was really hard for me this time watch, and this is the first time I've seen Major League in in years, was how prevalent he is, or that that character is mm-hmm. in the film. Right, he's on almost everybody's hat. He's on like 
t-shirts everyone is wearing. Yes. He is in the scoreboard, um, this animated right. version of himself doing incredibly stereotypical. Oh, of course. Uh, they have Chief Wahoo doing all these like scalping people and, mm -hmm. you know, doing a, a war cry and smoking a peace pipe. And, and also like just throughout the film, how all the fans are wearing stereotypical headdresses. They're wearing mm -hmm. you know, war paint. Uh, Bob Euchre hosts a radio call-in show called TV Talk, um, mm -hmm. which doesn't, does, mm, no, please don't. I think in that way, it is really hard for me to separate the film from the imagery that we are just inundated with. Mm -hmm. Thank you for joining us for our seventh inning stretch. Uh, the next question that we need to talk about is the representation of Black and Afro-Caribbean characters. Um, and so the two that I am particularly interested in and who are central to the film really are Willie Mays Hayes and Pedro Serrano. So Willie Mays Hayes, of course, is Wesley Snipes' character. Um, and I have and would argue on some level that he is the hero of the film. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of heroes of the film, uh, but uh, we'll put that in brackets for now. Um, talk about that a little bit later. Uh, he is, of course, named after Willie Mays, who played for the American Negro League from 1948 through 1951, then moved to the Giants in 1951. Um, a lot of folks um, consider him the best that ever lived. He was mm -hmm. a base stealer, an amazing base runner, an amazing hitter. Um, Snipes' character is a base stealing specialist. Uh, his ability to steal leads directly to the fancy plays that help the team win at the end of the film. Right? But uh, when you look at some of the filming of the clubhouse scenes, and especially in the marketing materials for the film, <laughs> Snipes' mm -hmm. character is really marginal. Right? We do not see an awful lot of Wesley Snipes. Another character then that we've got is uh, Pedro Serrano, played by Dennis Habert. Uh, he is the Cuban uh, power hitter uh, on the team. Uh, Habert, uh, who, who, who worships Jobu, right? Mm -hmm. So he has a shrine to his voodoo god, Jobu. He, uh, there's a question of whether they should have sacrificed a live chicken to Jobu <laughs> in the last... Uh, scene. Um, and every time that he, Habert or Jobu uh, comes on screen, there's this theme. I, I hesitate to reproduce it, um, uh, but various, very stereotypical. Um, so Habert, interestingly enough, has actively distanced himself from the role in recent years, right? Um, and I think that that's probably right. I mean, I think that the role really mocks a spiritual practice with a very long history, and it does it for cheap laughs. Um, there is an argument about what happens with Jobu versus a sort of evangelical uh, Christian relig religiousness uh, in the film. 
Um, but even in his repudiation of Jobu in the final scene, I feel like it's kind of played for last. Like, I feel like Jobu becomes kind of uh, uh, elided with all sorts of other kinds of superstitions in baseball. Like, you know, you have to do the same. I mean, I, I think a lot because I spent a lot of time being a fan of the Boston Red Sox mm-hmm, <laughs> back in the mm-hmm, day, right? Mm-hmm. All, all of their various rituals, the fact that they weren't going to, they were going to shave their head and they weren't going to shave their beards and uh, uh, no more Garcia Parra's elaborate pre-hit wind up every time. Like, I feel like in some ways Jobu is alighted with that. And so it isn't really considered a spiritual practice, but it's really considered a, a superstition. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jobu ends up delivering the home run, right? But is it spiritual or is it the superstition kind of along the lines of Willie Mays Hayes's gloves, right? He has all these gloves that he's purchased and every time he steals a base, he nails a glove up on his wall, right? So I, I, I think maybe all of that spirituality is being flattened, Um which I think also registers a profound cultural ambivalence about Latinx players in general, right? Right. And so, Paul, you had something to say about, you know, the, the status of Latinx players in the 80s. Right. And, and this is a point where you've had at least 20 years or so of uh, a lot of Dominican, Venezuelan um, uh, 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 players entering entering Major League, Major League Baseball. Um, <clears throat> So, but there's still, there's a very colonialist, you know, view of them as, as other, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that they don't fit into white norms of what baseball is, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my family at times is not the most enlightened, right? And so there, again, I would hear these things growing up that, you know, these certain Latin players for the Phillies or whomever, mm-hmm. like they, they didn't play the game the right way, right? Just, right. you know, uh, we, I think we understand the implication of, of that, of that, of that saying. Um, it's interesting that there have been Latin players in Major League Baseball for, for decades, uh, before the before the 1980s, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Many of them had come from from Cuba and Mexico, uh, and after the Cuban Revolution, right, that pipeline stops, right, to the United States, and so there are a lot of uh, a lot of teams move to other Caribbean countries to recruit players, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but but it's odd to me in the film that no one seems to have ever interacted with a Latin player in this in this clubhouse, mm-hmm. and. And so everything then takes on an additional layer of mm-hmm. exotic other. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, I think your point about that line between superstition and spirituality, right? That we don't mm-hmm. see superstitions of other, I don't believe, other white players mm-hmm. uh, to, to that extent. I, I think it really diminishes the black characters in, in this film, even though they, they play incredibly integral, integral roles to mm-hmm. the, the Indians winning, winning that, that one game playoff, maybe even more so than their white counterparts. It's Willie Mays Hayes who steals second. Mm-hmm. It's um, uh, Serrano who hits the home run. Um, mm-hmm. But it, uh, yeah, it, it's interesting in this very racist film with all this yeah. imagery. <laughs> 
that two of the most important characters don't really appear in, in the marketing in the yep. kind of the, the, yeah. yeah but but they also are the ones who you know in the the long history of the film and the the long cultural memory of the film are the most important when people watch it now they do watch it for Pedro Serrano they do watch it for Willie Mays Hayes right they don't watch it as much for any of the other characters that were put forward in the contemporaneous marketing. It's a great statement about the persistence of a, of a, of a text um, and how a text actually can fit audiences at different moments, even if it wasn't really intended to speak to them mm-hmm. uh, at the moment of its reception, initial reception. So. Well, we're barreling right into the eighth inning, which is the ending for our awards, Paul, which is our favorite part of every episode. That is. It is. Mm -hmm. It is. And so uh, as we always have awarded the, well, at least since our second episode, Die Hard, uh, the Alan Rickman Award for the actor who we wish was really in every scene. Right. Mm -hmm. And this is sometimes an actor who uh, has a very uh, small part, um, but it's the person who we really felt make the made the film and and elevated the film or the television show to greatness, um, even perhaps despite the material that they were given. So for Major League, the Alan Rickman Award goes to the one and only Mr. Baseball, Bob Euchre. Excellent. So, Paul, why did we give Bob Uecker the Alan Rickman for this one? I mean, I feel like sometimes the Alan Rickman Award, aside from Alan Rickman, has been a source <laughs> of, of controversy, right? Um, with, the, with the exception of Tom Hanks. I think we agreed on Tom Hanks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty, pretty clear. But Bob Uecker has the best lines in the film. Bob mm-hmm. Uecker, uh just brings a level of expertise and weariness and joy to to the role (laughs) he he captures what it is like to be a fan of a franchise that is somewhat hapless yeah right yeah Where, where where you go in every day hoping for greatness but really are pretty sure that they're gonna pull defeat out of the jaws of victory Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's it's the way he vacillates between performing the good play by play announcer role, and then mm-hmm. off when the mic's off, just like his real self comes out, and like the jaded, bitter fan, mm-hmm. yep, uh, or employee uh, <laughs> comes out. Yep. In yep. Yep. Um, Euchre played professional baseball, uh, I think mainly with, with the St. Louis Cardinals and I think the, the Milwaukee Brewers as well. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. They transitioned into broadcasting and then acting. He was on the, uh, the sitcom Mr. Belvedere in the 1980s. He's also in Major League. Um, <laughs> Mr. Belvedere. Mr. Belvedere. Uh, he, he really became nationally prominent for doing Miller Light commercials. Uh, yes, Miller he did. Was introduced. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And if you go have the chance uh, to go to YouTube and look up Bob Uecker Miller Lite commercials, he plays them so brilliantly. Mr. Uh, Baseball. Mr. Yeah. Baseball, you know. Oh, these are my seats. No, they're not. You're, you're all the way up there. <laughs> so I'll put some of those up on the on the yeah. Instagram or the uh, on the on the Twitter. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and also, being this the only wrestling reference I'll get in this episode, he's also in the WWE Hall of Fame for he participated in one of the WrestleManias as like a, a, a an MC at some point. Really Amy fun. patiently allows. Continue. You get I get I get one per episode, um, <laughs> per my contract, which is over here. <laughs> I won't piss on it. I promise. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate. You're welcome. That. But also, you know. As like having lived in Milwaukee for 12 years or whatever I've, I've been here, uh, this adoration for Bob Uecker. So I knew, I knew Bob Uecker mm -hmm. for the mm -hmm. national persona, but mm -hmm. for locals, like he is synonymous with Milwaukee baseball for all these different reasons. Oh, yeah. Um, you see Uecker jerseys uh, when you go to. Well, he's had his number, uh, not really. He, the number 50 mm -hmm. has been not really retired the brewers but uh when you the hall of fame up around brewer stadium euchre 50 is up there like mm -hmm. people still are play under the number 50 but right. there are euchre 50 jerseys i mean a, a really decent uh percentage of jerseys you see at the games are for him yeah, yeah. absolutely and he has bobbleheads i mean yeah. you know yeah uh he uh, announces at opening day every year he's he's just he's he's a fixture yeah he's he's fantastic mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, and he has of course the best again like i said the best quotes in the entire the entire film yeah should we run through a couple of them yeah let's go through a couple all right let's do it so one of my favorites is personally i think we got hosed on that call <laughs> <laughs> and that's one of my favorites because the the term of being hosed uh i did college or in high school uh, debate, and yeah. when you got cheated, you had gotten hosed. Mm -hmm. So uh, mm -hmm. that was straight out of straight out of euchre. Yes, yes. Uh, my favorite line is when he's doing his radio show, mm -hmm. and he says, "If you haven't noticed the, I'm paraphrasing here. If you haven't noticed the Indians have been on a bit of a winning streak recently, and judging by the attendance, you haven't." And it's very. <laughs> <laughs> but also like his delivery is just perfect uh right you know, it's <laughs> yeah yes and as as now a podcaster i particularly like um when he says that's all we got one goddamn hit and then his you can't say goddamn says, on the air yeah and he says no worry nobody's listening anyway so i feel like that kind of captures our experience here Paul. it cuts it cuts close to home it, as yeah. it were yeah. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So our next award is the Linda Evans Award for Excellence in Camp. Mm -hmm. And we had a couple of really good uh, options for this one. Um, one, of course, I mean, the obvious one would really be Charlie Sheen as right. the wild thing, right? Mm -hmm. uh, every, you know, he, he, he has a tuxedo and he rips the sleeves off <laughs> because he's got to show his guns, yeah. right? Uh, but we had a lively conversation with this award and, and Paul and I were finally convinced by, by Jess's argument. 
I kind of thought that Lou, the manager, um, the gruff speaking manager was the Linda Evans um, award. You, uh, you know, he starts off working in a tire shop um, and he's like, yeah, sure. I'll manage. I got to go deal with the sale. Um, he pees on um, Dorn's contract. Yes. He's the one who comes up with the stripper winning thing. Um, and he's really in it you know, for the guys, like, and then he brings in, uh, Rick Vaughn at the last, cause he's got a hunch like that mm-hmm, happens in right? baseball ever. So <laughs> like, you know, like, oh yeah, we'll just go with the guy who can't, who's never gotten a hit, you know, or who has never struck out Haywood. And plus he's just, you know, I don't know. I feel like he's the character you see in things, but you don't know what, but he's instantly recognizable mm. and he's got the mustache, the gruff voice. The, the mustache is really key. Right? That that was my vote for the Linda Evans Award for Excellence. We have made it to the end of our episode, and it is time for our graduate reading. Paul, why don't you get us started? All right. Uh, I'll lead off the top of the ninth here. Um, I'm very tempted to say Eight Men Out, uh, which is still one of my favorite movies, um, even ba- not, not let alone baseball movies. Um, but I'm going to have to go with Moneyball, um, because one of the things that with the sports film, I think one of my criticisms of sports films with, with, with some, with some exceptions mm-hmm. is sports films follow this very tried and true, the underdogs <coughs> coming out on top and winning the, the final, the final game. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I appreciate that, but for me, who's pretty invested in sports, I, I, I find the, what happens behind the scenes kind of almost more interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the reasoning for why a team will make a move, right, mm-hmm. is not just what we fans think, like, I can't believe they traded that guy, but there's mm-hmm. a rationale and there's Absolutely. like a negotiation that takes place. Yeah. Um, so the Moneyball film um, starring Brad Pitt, uh, the, the dramatization of uh, the uh, Billy Bean, the former GM of the it's still the GM of the Oakland, Oakland athletics. Mm-hmm. Um, but was it Red Sox? Yes. Yes. And uh, made the Red Sox happen when, yeah. when they did. Yeah. Um, and, but this really interesting look at the, the, the embrace of sabermetrics and advanced statistics in mm-hmm, management mm-hmm. Of, of baseball and the kind of the conflict between old school play by the gut uh, sort mm-hmm. of managerial decisions, but also I think does a really good job of demonstrating how like I like how trades operate and how I, one of my favorite scenes in all of mm-hmm. cinema is, you know, Brad Pitt trying to trade a player and competing <laughs> with other, and but he gets really involved in it as as almost a fan would or as a player would, um, and I think it's a really um, fantastic movie. So uh, I will also add that my friend Pete Coviello had one of perhaps the best nutshell 
descriptions of Moneyball that I've ever read um, because he was watching the film with his father. And he said, and I quote, sweet Jesus, this is legit psycho shit. A sweethearted story about the extraction of unremunerated value from depersonalized, algorithmicized labor as authorized by the combined visionary genius of, parentheses, for real, Yale plus economics. Also, hot Brad Pitt. <laughs> and I feel like he yeah. tweeted that, and I feel like that's probably one of the best... Um, best nutshell uh descriptions of moneyball that i that one could ever read and that's, that's something from, that's something you wish you could you could write and you, pete, you pete has a gift actually really anything that pete writes mm -hmm. it's pretty much like that he 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 is a genius of our time so um so i guess it's time for my grad reading mm -hmm. and uh, my grad reading kind of got a little bit usurped because we're planning on doing bull durham for our next episode. Um, but you should just go ahead and watch it. It is the best baseball film Kevin Costner has ever been in. Um, and he, he's been in a lot of baseball films. We will spend some time arguing that point. I will spend mm -hmm. some time arguing that point in our next episode. Um, I also very much love Bull Durham because I am a native North Carolinian. And I was able to watch the impact that that film had on the Durham Bulls and on North Carolina generally. But I also have a couple others. I'm cheating a little bit. One of them is, as I've already mentioned, I, I was a Red Sox fan in the late 90s and early aughts. And so I feel that Four Days in October, which is one of the first 30 for 30 films on um, ESPN, it's about the 2004 ALCS. That was a really religious experience <laughs> for a lot of people. It's actually just astonishing empirically, I feel like, even if you hate the Red Sox, even if you hate the Yankees, I mean, it had everything like that. That is a film that mm -hmm. is a dramatic, you know, romantic movie about baseball. You know, it was There's a bloody sock. There's, you know, yeah. they were down and they came back and it was, you know, just a brilliant thing. So it was a religious experience. That was that week. Most of the nation was, were Red Sox fans. And then that. that right. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite things about living in Boston for, for so many years during the late 90s and early aughts was, um, you know, everybody was obsessed with the fact that the Red Sox was never going to were never going to win there. Uh, if you went on Storo Drive, um, there's a place that there was a sign that was supposed to be is supposed to say reverse curve, mm -hmm. but it was always uh, uh, changed to say reverse curse because it was about the curse of the Bambino. I, when we talk about like the civic religion of sports, I mean, I, I was never a baseball fan until I went to a Red Sox game, being a person who lived in Boston and understood the, the immense civic passion around the Red Sox. So um, that, that's what made me a baseball fan, uh, honestly. Um, the other thing that I would say would be my grad reading, uh, somewhat controversial. <laughs> it's not really a grad reading, it's a grad listening, uh, is to listen, please, to Don Henley's Boys of Summer. To my mind, the only good thing that has ever been uh, produced by anyone ever associated with the Eagles. 
I think Paul agrees. We've had conversations about the Eagles. Mm, mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. song is amazing. I think maybe one of the reasons it's so good is it started as a demo for Tom Petty. And Tom Petty kind of put it aside. I, I just, I listened to the song and I felt like it was a little bit stereotypical when it came out at the time when I was a kid in the 80s. But I have to tell you, in my dotage, <laughs> I feel like it's just, a, the, it's like the perfect nostalgia summer song. So just sit down listen to it without doing anything else and just let it pour over you. It is, it is an amazing piece. It's, mm. a, it's a great track. Mm. All right. So I think, I think that that is our, that is our eighth episode, Paul. Yes, it is. It is. And it so is. F nine mm-hmm. will be Bull Durham coming up very soon and then i think it's almost time for us to deal with the inevitable dirty dancing <sighs> it's a good end of summer episode so we're that, oh that try. makes sense okay yeah all right i think, I that think convinces we try me. I, th- I think we try i think we try for 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 bull durham in in july and mm-hmm. then dirty dancing in august uh because it's a very end of summery kind of kind of that's thing. true that's true Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced by that argument. Great. Sure. Excellent. Right. Well, thanks everybody for joining us. I appreciate once again, endlessly, the production assistance of Eleanor Toyama, who will help us clean all of this up and make it pretty and give us special effects. All right. Get out of the stadium or parking lot or whatever. Yeah. All right. Oh, what we used to say uh, at Duke basketball games, we used to say, go alumni beat the traffic. <laughs> Go. That's pretty good. Alumni That's pretty good. Beat yeah. the traffic. Except they never actually left because they spent the No, yeah. That's- All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.